Well, gang, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with y'all. Um, so for those of you who I have not met, maybe you're a guest or a visitor this morning, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and uh, it is really good to have you with us. We're, we're glad that you're with us this morning um, as we worship our God and come to his word. And uh, I, I just... Um, just have to take a little point of personal privilege um, and just tell you, man, I love doing baptisms and memberships. I mean, that is just, uh, that's just a lot of fun. <laughs> I just have to say that. Um, I think, you know, every, uh, the others in our midst who are, who are pastors, Doug, and, and future pastors like Matt and Tobias and, and others, like uh, that, it's like, man, we'll, we'll put up with uh, committee meetings any day of the week to do that sort of thing because that, that really is beautiful and sweet. So uh, I, I really do consider a privilege to, to be able to um, be y'all's pastor and to be the pastor of these children. Um, it is a sweet and, and very good thing. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to, to talk about that. But uh, we this morning are in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20. And we'll be looking at verse 15 of Exodus 20. These are the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and as you recall, we're looking at the commandments and trying to look at them through the lens of how Jesus did. That he said the entirety of the commandments are built on the foundation that we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. That this is how the commandments are summarized. Love our Lord and love our neighbor. And so the second half of the commandments really are focused on that love of neighbor. And this morning, that's what we're looking at, how we are to love our neighbor in regards to our possessions, in regards to our things, uh, in regards to uh, our heart posture towards others, a generous, not stingy sort of posture. So if you would, please follow along. Exodus 20, verse 15, it's a very short passage. You shall not steal. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do ask that as we come to your word that you would lead us in the way that we are to go and that you would allow uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Greed is good. Y'all have heard that before. That phrase, greed is good, it was made famous in the uh, 80s movie Wall Street. It was uh, uttered by the main character, Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko, not the Geico Gecko. Gordon Gecko. <laughs> Greed is good. Now, uh, now we've seen that movie. If you've seen that movie, you know that how it plays out is that greed is not good. In fact, most of us wouldn't be so brash, so brazen as to make that sort of utterance. Greed is good because we know intuitively that, that greed is not a characteristic that we consider to be virtuous. It is actually something that we think that we should put aside. Greed is not good. We all know that. And yet very often our actions reflect the very opposite of that. See, with our actions, we sometimes demonstrate that we believe that greed is good, that it is virtuous, that it is something to be pursued. For instance, in 2016, Time magazine ran an article that indicated that United States businesses lost $48.6 billion to shoplifting into employee fraud. $48.6 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, that was being lost just by employees taking from their employer or from shoplifting. One in 11 people have shoplifted at some point in their life. One in 11, a couple hundred people in here, 
means a few of us maybe at some time or another have, have perpetrated that crime. One in 11. In the last five years, 10 million people have been caught shoplifting. That doesn't even include the people who weren't caught. 10 million. And there's no profile. When we even talk about something minor like shoplifting, there's no profile. The wealthy do it and so do the poor. The educated, white collar, blue collar, whites, blacks, Asian, Hispanic, people who live in the suburbs and people who live in the exurbs and people who live in the inner city, there's no profile. In fact, just a few months ago, maybe you saw three UCLA basketball students were convicted of shoplifting in China. And maybe you would sit there and go, well, they're college students, you know, uh, they're, they're poor college students maybe, right? They, they, they needed something or they wanted something, whatever it might be. But, but actually one of those students, is he comes from great privilege, great wealth. When he was 16, his father bought him a Lamborghini. <laughs> Happy 16th birthday, son. His family owns a shoe line that sells basketball shoes that range from $500 to $700 a pair. He could have easily whipped out his visa and swiped it and bought whatever it was that he was stealing. I don't even remember what it was, but it was something minor, something inconsequential. It's not that he didn't have the means. He simply wanted to do it. When asked, why did you do it? None of them had an answer. They just said, well, it was stupid. It was foolish. I don't know why. They took. They wanted it. It was something that they desired. Maybe he thought, I just deserve it. I'm entitled to it. This isn't just the mentality of college basketball students, but, but there are many who engage in this sort of behavior. And it's not just things, petty crimes like shoplifting, but, but this commandment actually is much wider, much broader than that. And we don't have an instance of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying things like you've heard it said, now I say, like he has with others. But, but when we look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, it starts listing off all these different ways in which we can break this commandment. It says things like theft and robbery, man-stealing, chattel slavery, that's what it's condemning there, fraudulent dealing, unjust and sinful ways of taking or withholding from neighbor, covetousness, envying of prosperity, idleness, idleness. Maybe it's providence that we're talking about this during March, because March Madness is coming. And last year, it was expected that in the first week of the tournament, that businesses would lose $4 billion in lost productivity because employees would be watching the games rather than doing their work. See, it's not just sticky fingers at the local drugstore or that sweater that we've been wanting. It's much broader than that, this commandment. And it's not just the actual idleness or thievery, but it's the heart as well. The larger catechism goes on and includes things like covetousness and inordinate prizing, affecting worldly goods. Do you know what that means, affecting worldly goods? It means, it means looking at our possessions and saying, that is mine, and grasping hold of it very tightly. That is mine. It's prizing possessions in a sinful and unhealthy way. So when we start thinking about it in those ways, well, now, now it's starting to get a little bit more in here, isn't it? Maybe didn't steal from some Chinese gift shop, but, but covetousness, inordinate prizing, grasping hold tightly of my things. Well, now every one of us is in danger 
and perhaps guilty of breaking this commandment. So what are we to do with that? Like, how do we combat that? So there's, there's a couple ways we could discuss this commandment. We could go through, like, the larger catechism and look at every single way we break it and, and talk about those and look at the different scripture verses. That, that would be a productive time spent, and I would encourage you to do that. The larger catechism is very helpful. But instead of looking at the various ways that we perpetrate this crime, that we break this commandment, what I would rather us do is think about the antidote to this commandment. How is it that we combat the temptation to break it? What is the antidote to theft? And what we're going to see is that the first way, the first way that we combat this, the antidote, is that we consider ourselves not primarily as possessors, as owners, but as stewards. That we need to be stewards. So if you have your Bible open, like last week, we're going to flip around a little bit. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open, take out your um, tablet or your phone if you have the Bible on there. Uh, We are going to jump around a little bit, and we're going to turn to Genesis 1, just as we did Last week, we turned to Genesis. In Genesis 1, God is creating the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, right? Um, As he's moving towards the day of rest, he he creates the the birds of the air and the fish of the deep, and he creates on the sixth day all those that creep along the ground, and then he creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. And then he says in verse 28, after he has created man, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man, male and female, after his own image, and then he gave them a task. Theologically, what we call this is the cultural mandate. God gave man a mandate, and there's two parts to it. Did you hear it? That the first task given to man is to fill the earth with image bearers. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He's saying procreate, right? Create little image bearers to fill this earth. But then the second part of this commandment, the second part of this mandate is to subdue. He says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, that we are to have dominion. Now, that's not domination. It's dominion. Domination says we can do whatever we want with this world and the things of it. We can do whatever we want. So if we want to abuse it, if we want to throw it away, if we want to cherish it and idolize it, we could do whatever we want. That's domination, but that's not what God said. He said have dominion. Cornelius Planiga, the, the Dutch theologian, says that this is responsible dominion. That's how we should think about it. That as we exercise dominion, as we subdue the earth, that we are to do so in a way that reflects God's rule and reign. And so we are to have dominion, but as we express this dominion, it should reflect the goodness of God. You see, the assumption of Genesis 1 is that we are going to reflect, embody the way that God rules on this earth as we, his image bearers, have dominion in it. So um, being a pastor, I have lots of books. I read a lot. Like that's kind of part of the job description. You have to read, right? Like theology and exegetical books and applied theology and all these sorts of books. And and it's really fun. Like 
That's a pretty great job description I get to read. Um, but that also means that many of y'all are coming and asking me to borrow books, which I love to do. I love giving books, even though I know that sometimes I won't get them back. <laughs> uh, so maybe it's appropriate we're talking about the Eighth Commandment today. <laughs> so some of y'all, you know who you are. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I actually checked. None of you are owing me a book right now. But, but a number of years ago, when I was at my previous church, uh, a member of my church was teaching a class on Romans or 1 Corinthians. I can't remember which. And so he comes and he asks Penny, you know, do you have a commentary I can borrow? And so I pull off a commentary. I hand it to him. And then he walks me into the, uh, the church workroom. He wanted me to see this. So he walks me over to the table and he pulls out packing paper, like really thick brown packing paper, and he starts wrapping my commentary in this paper, and he's making his own makeshift dust jacket, except this is like an industrialized dust jacket. Like every single edge is covered, and he's using packing tape to make sure that it stays, and he's writing my name on the front so he knows that it's not his, it's mine. And I said, Dick, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing all of this for this one book? Because no one has ever done this before, I promise you. I see how they are returned. And he said, he said, Penny, that's why I'm doing it. Because this is not mine, it is yours. And I want to care for it, and I want to return it to you as you first gave it to me. He was doing that with a book, but friends, that's what we are to do with all of the creation. You see, that's what God says to us in Genesis 1. He says, I have made you a steward of my good world. It's not yours, it's mine. Care for it, love it, protect it, present it to me as I have given it to you. Now, when we think about that, we often only think about in the realms of creation or the environment, and those are good things, but, but actually that's talking about so much more. It's so much more than that. You see, in Psalm 24, verse 1, David says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. That phrase, the fullness thereof, it, it, can, mean to, uh, it can literally mean, and all that fills it. So the earth is the Lord's, and all that fills it. Not just on the created level, not just the birds of the air, not just the creeping things that creep along the ground, but everything in it, all of the earth and all that fills it is God's. You know what that means? That means my TV, my house, my car, my little bobblehead statues in my office, my books, myself my children, my family, my clothes, my food, everything. It's not really mine, it's his. That's what that means. That Kuiper was right when he said that there is not a single square inch of the entire created order that Jesus does not say, mine. And he's not just talking about creation, he's talking about everything that fills creation. It is his. It is his. We are but stewards. Now listen, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not calling for some sort of communal ownership. That's not what I'm saying. Private property, personal property, it is assumed in the commandment. You cannot steal if it doesn't belong to someone. What I'm trying to encourage us to do is to have a broader perspective that it is not simply mine, but it is something that God has given to us that we would care for on behalf of him. 
that we are stewards. You see, when we, when we realize that we are stewards of God's good gifts, then it frees us from the temptation of ever breaking the, ninth, or the eighth commandment. See, we don't need to feel like we have to hoard and hold on to. We don't feel like we have to steal or to take, but we can actually give it away. And that's where I want us to move. You see, the second antidote flows right out of the first. You see, as soon as we see that we are stewards, we will be generous. We will be generous. And when we are generous, we will show our generosity by giving. So the Heidelberg Catechism, question 111, says that we fulfill this commandment by working faithfully so that we may share with those who are in need. And that's coming straight out of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you remember in Ephesians 4, uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul says that the result of no longer stealing isn't so that you would have things and resources and and food and, and ways to provide for yourself and your family. He's not saying that's not the ultimate reason. Those are good things. Those are good reasons. But he says that let the thief no longer steal. Let him work honestly with his hands so that he would have something to give to those in need. And so what Paul is indicating is that those things that are not really ours but are God's, that they're given to us so that we would give them away. So that we would use our things for the goodness of others, for the blessing of others. That that's what Paul is indicating there. If we take a posture of stewardship, what, what's mine is God's, then we are going to be generous with those things that God has given to us. <clears throat> And friends, many of y'all are doing this. Many of y'all are doing this. You don't have to be uber wealthy to do this. Because many of you are. I'm watching you. I see you. And it's not just with checks that you're writing, because I don't know what, how much the checks are that you're writing. But I'm watching you do it in other ways. Opening your homes and your tables. Opening your lives giving your time and your resources, giving your money. Many of you are doing this, and it is a glorious thing to see. When people look at the things that they have and see them not primarily as a way to bless myself, but as a way to be a blessing. Y'all are doing it. And it is beautiful. And you know it's beautiful. You know it's good because, because... Giving and generosity begets giving and generosity. As we give, we experience the joy of giving. Paul talks about that in Philippians. I'm not just seeking the gift. I'm seeking the the gift that will be attributed to you on account of the gift, the blessing that will be given to you as you give. And many of you are experiencing that because you know know how I know that? Because I've never heard someone go, you know what? I'm just way too generous. (laughs) You know, uh, what, what's one of your be saying sins? I just give too much away, right? No one says that because we know the blessing of it. We know the joy of giving. That once we experience that blessing, we want to experience it again and again and again. And you guys are doing that. I watch you. It's beautiful. That we give for the sake of others. But as we are being generous, as we're working this out, This generosity isn't expressed simply by giving. It's also expressed by faith. 
You see, if we are going to be generous, we have to have faith. We have to believe that God will provide for us. So you remember in Mark chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are at the treasury. They're sitting there and they're watching different people come up and make, put their money in the offering box. They're dropping it in the box. And we're told in Mark 12 that many rich people were coming and they were putting in their large sums. But then a poor widow came, and I'll read for us now, and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The widow gave all that she had. Now, I want you to put yourself in that situation, in the place of that woman. I mean, if there was ever someone who'd be inclined to hold on to it, to, to try and save, maybe someone who'd even be inclined to steal, to take, wouldn't it be someone who only has a penny to their name? And yet, what does she do? She gives it away. She gives it to the Lord. This is an, an incredible expression of faith. This is her trusting that God, God will continue to provide. You see, I think the reason why many of us struggle with generosity is it's not because we're selfish. It's not because we want to hoard. I think it's because we're afraid of tomorrow. We're concerned with what tomorrow might bring, and so, so we want to accumulate wealth and security for us. And so we want to build our own coffers because we don't know what tomorrow might bring. Jesus has a word for us in that too. If you still have your Bibles open, turn to Matthew 6. Now we'll turn again to the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is saying you can't serve both. You can't serve God and money. And so he's encouraging us, serve God. Don't serve money. And then he goes on in verse 25. Follow along if you have your Bibles open. He says, therefore, so you can't serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, more value, not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What a beautiful passage. What a wonderful encouragement. The reason why we can be generous is because the one who's been generous with us will give us all that we need. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Gospels. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at how they are arrayed in all their beauty. Our God, our Father, he clothes them. Won't won't he also clothe those whom he loves? Of course he will. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed, and yet God will provide for his people exactly what they need. We need not worry about tomorrow. We need not hoard. We need not close our fists around our possessions, worried about tomorrow, but we can be generous and we can be extravagant because our God gives us what, he need, what we need. I love it. He says he will provide. He knows what we need. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows what you need. And so we can have faith and trust as we seek to combat temptation to break the eighth commandment, to to thieve and to steal and to hold on to. We, We can have faith to give it away. That our God has been generous to us and he will continually generously provide for us again and again and again. And that is the reason why we can be generous, y'all. We've talked about the the how, by giving and by faith, but the why is because God himself has given. God himself has given. We we know the the famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him would not die but have eternal life, that God so loved, he gave. But in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul employs that same motivation. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonian church. There was some kind of famine or, or drought that was taking place. And the Macedonian church, who was not wealthy, and they actually were told, gave out of their poverty, Paul says that they have been giving of themselves and they're trying to give to this need to help this other church in another place. And so he's using them as a motivation to the Corinthians to give. And then he says, you know, I'm an apostle, so I could tell you, you should give or you must give. He says, I could command you, but I I won't command you. Instead, what he says in verse 9, he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Y'all, that's the gospel. That our Lord Jesus, who was in heaven, in the rightful place of glory, did not remain in glory, but he took on flesh, and he was, he was born to some no-name little girl, with a carpenter for a husband in some no-name town. And he lived and he died between two thieves. Excuse me. He who was rich became poor so that you might become rich. That Jesus, through his poverty, makes his people wealthy. He was rich and became poor for you. 
By his poverty, we become rich. And so as those who have experienced that extravagant generosity, how can we not respond in kind? You know, every time I think about the generosity of God, and particularly that passage in 2 Corinthians, I'm reminded of, excuse me, uh, Jean Valjean and Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Many of you know that story. Valjean is a convict who has been released. He is is stolen, and he has been released, and he has nowhere to lay his head. And so he finds himself at the door of the bishop, and he knocks on the door, and the bishop welcomes him in, this vagabond, this man who who even the kennel, do you remember, even the, the, the dog pound would not take him in because he looks so distraught. And the bishop welcomes him in and gives him a place at his table and gives him a bed for his head that evening. And in the quiet of the night, the bishop is awoken. And he comes out and he finds Valjean standing there with an open bag, taking silver spoons and forks and knives, and he's putting them in his bag. And the bishop looks distraught, and Valjean hits him in the head, and he flees. Not even 24 hours later, the next day, the local police have captured Valjean, and he returns them to the bishop and says, this this thief has claimed that you gave him these silver spoons and knives and forks. And do you remember what the bishop said? He said, Valjean, you foolish man. You forgot the candlesticks. And he goes and he grabs the candlesticks and he stuffs them in the bag. And the, the police officers are, are they're befuddled, right? They're, they can't comprehend what has just happened. And they walk away and the bishop looks at Valjean and he says, do not forget Never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And from that moment on, Valjean was generous with others. He granted forgiveness and grace and mercy. He experienced generosity that he never deserved, and it changed him. And friends, people of God, if you have known Christ, if you have received him, if you have experienced that his generosity, you have experienced a generosity that is greater than even what is described in Les Mis. You have received the gracious gift of our God and our Father. Do you remember that on the cross, as Jesus was hanging between two thieves, one of the thieves said to him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? The same thing that he says to all of his people, who he showers with generous grace. He said, You will be with me in paradise. Friends, the antidote to theft is a generous gift. And that is exactly what Christ has given. Amen. Our God and our King, we do ask that you would stir in our hearts a celebration of the gift that we have received. That you would help us to celebrate and to live with thankfulness at the generosity of our God and our King. 
that you, Lord Jesus, who was rich, became poor, that by your poverty we might become rich, rich with blessing, rich with faith, rich with life. Help us to live in a manner that reflects us. Help us to be generous with all that you have given, knowing that we are but stewards of your good and perfect gifts. Help us to do this, to be a generous people, living with generosity because we serve a generous God. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said together, amen.